Greetings, dear listeners. This is another episode of the Remnant Podcast. I am Jonah Goldberg, the host. Today's special episode of The Remnant is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. We do not have Jack Butler here. He doesn't even know I'm doing this, so <laughs> uh, uh, he may be, you know, he, he may be furious. He may be uh, so enraged that I did this without clearing with him that he breaks his monotone. We'll never know. Um, <laughs> but instead, I have uh, my friend and colleague, at least for a little while longer, friend for a lot while longer, colleague for maybe a little while longer, uh, uh, David French. David, welcome. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Yeah, we didn't plan on having you back so soon, um, but uh, I was at this National Review Summit thing, and you were still hanging around, and you had time to kill before a plane, and I was like, I've got my fancy recorder stuff in my car, so let's let's give it a shot. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, so you heard my panel with... Um, oh, so uh, uh, for those of you who don't know, David French... Senior editor? Senior writer? Senior writer. Yeah, okay. Senior writer. I, I never know yeah. what anyone's titles are. Yeah. That so doesn't matter in-house yeah. what people's titles are at National yeah. Review. I mean, Rich's title matters. Yeah, you know? exactly. Um, and that kid we call Piss Boy. But everybody in between. <laughs> um, so um, I just finished uh, a panel with Rich Lowry and poor Jim Garrity, who was stuck Shh. between the two of us on the issue of nationalism. I can make my case for what that all was. Um Maybe we'll get the audio. We, we actually may play that podcast that as a podcast as well if they recorded it well. But what'd you make of all of it? Yeah, you know, I, there's a couple of things about it. Um, as a general matter, on that debate between you and Rich, I'm on Team Jonah, uh-huh. um, and a couple of things, uh, a couple of things really stood out to me because Rich, at his at his most animated and sort of speaking with his most conviction, used a historical analogy that I've heard on this podcast before. Right. And that was that the roots of nationalism are very enduring and very ancient in part because of the experience of the nation of Israel. Okay. And as soon as I heard that... A nation we both like, just to put it out there. We both like, yeah, yes. Yes, yeah. yes. And, and as will become plain as I explain my objection to Rich's <laughs> point. So Rich sort of says the concept of the nation state was established by God that God um, by by selecting Abraham and setting apart the people of Israel established the concept of a nation that is so strong and it is so powerful that it endures to this day this nation this particular nation endures to this day uh, you know four or five thousand years later four thousand years later however many I mean biblical scholars don't nitpick that number right, but right, right, right. a long time yeah. and I immediately thought, wait a wait a minute, hold the phone here. The purpose of selecting Abraham, the purpose of setting aside the people of Israel, was not to establish the precedent of uh, the way in which people of the world govern themselves. Right. It was to set apart a people, the people of God, to reserve them, and in Christian theology, to the 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 vehicle and the instrument through which the Savior of mankind comes. Right. So the preservation of the nation of Israel, and this is actually something I wrote in um, in National Review recently, is divine providence that is unique to the nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. And to say that God selected Abraham is not to say that there is in precedent to say that God selected Bismarck. Right, right, right. And so to use that was a uh, as an example, I thought was wait a minute. I think there's special historical circumstances because. 
the Israelites certainly didn't necessarily have a huge love of like Canaanite nationalism. Right, right, <laughs> right. And and the Hittites, you know, they had a claim to some borders, and they're yeah. all gone. <laughs> Who's a, who remembers the Amalekites or the Philistines or yeah. the, you know? Well, see, that's so. This is part of my problem with this, and I don't want to heap scorn or criticism just on Rich or on on Yoram Harzoni, who does this stuff too, but. He, Rich is absolutely right. Like uh, I can't remember his name. Um, was, I want to say it's this guy Greenberg. There, there's this great book on the history of France on the French Revolution that I read about how France was a chosen nation and how mm-hmm. this 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 idea of chosenness mm-hmm. really did have powerful, you know, metaphorical resonance in the in the age of nationalism in the in mm-hmm. the in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And and I think Rich is entirely correct that it had powerful resonance in the United States of America and in the British colonies. Um, but that's a metaphor. Yeah, it's a literary point. Mm-hmm. And you know, when people have the idea that nationalism uh, as a historical factor comes from, I mean, like I'm not going to get into an argument about biblical literalism, but it's you know, modern nationalism comes. From as as Michael Brendan Doherty likes to argue, it's 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 a process of irritation mm-hmm. where the you know the stuff I know best is the sort of the Romantic nationalism of Germany, where basically the French uh, revolutionary armies and then the French Napoleonic armies just were absolute jerks to the Germans, and the Germans <laughs> wanted to speak German, and they want mm-hmm. and so they have Johann Herder shouting, "Spit out that vile slime of the Seine and speak German," and the Brothers Grimm fairy tales mm-hmm. come out of that. It was this attempt to sort of excavate the past and mm-hmm. find all these old myths and stuff. And uh, the ability, the desire to come up with the pagan nation of Germania is right. not directly drawn from the Old Testament. You right. know? And, but that, that's my point. It's not that it's not drawn. It's just that people grab the arguments nearest to hand mm-hmm. and nationalism isn't primarily... A political doctrine that comes out of a sort of literary interpretation of the Old Testament, right? Um, right, exactly. Although, I mean, it's you know, I got you got to admit when you when someone is saying, you know, look, I mean, the inherent power of nationalism is so strong that it can persist across this you know multi thousand year history. Uh, you know, that's at first blush compelling, but then there's a whole other explanation for it. Right, um, whole other explanation. And the the other thing I thought that was interesting about the conversation is I have some quibbles about nationalism in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So, if the Civil War, I look is the Union Army. I mean, this was a war to maintain the Union. But if the Civil War was about nationalism writ large, it could have been just a matter of crushing the Confederacy. Right. Crushing this army, crushing this nation, and re- preserving the slave states. I mean, in fact, early on in this in the conflict, uh, you know, Lincoln made it quite clear that he would preserve the Union. Why, you know, that these seceding states didn't need to secede. He was going to preserve slavery. Mm-hmm. But then, as the war developed, it became quite clear that there had to be something transcendent here. Yeah beyond the nationalist motivation of just keeping the nation unified. And, you know, this new birth of freedom, um, you know, idea in the Gettysburg Address and, the you know, the second inaugural, the transcendent themes of the second inaugural, to me, that that's 
you know, the Civil War example is an example equivalent to the ideals expressed in the Declaration of Independence that mm-hmm. says this country is about so much more than sort of the blood and soil right. and the place that it is. And, and you know, so I think of the, the, of the Civil War as a as one of our moments in which we declared there's something about this place that is not the blood and soil. It is not the even blood and soil and unified faith. It is right. something different. Well, yeah, I mean, this is an argument I make in speeches a lot for my book, is that that's what Martin Luther King did. That was the great thing about the March on Washington speech, is that almost exactly 100 years later, what he was doing was saying, you know, this idea that Lincoln sort of introduced, that the interesting part of the Declaration of Independence was the beginning, not the end, right? Right. like when the Declaration of Independence first came out, the exciting part was the end, independence. The beginning, yeah. as I often unfairly joke about Jefferson, is that it's basically throat clearing by a writer on deadline. You know, <laughs> and but with Lincoln, as he plucked that and said, this idea that we're all created by God with certain inalienable rights and we're equal in the eyes of God and all that stuff. Martin Luther King comes along and he says that was the promissory note, right? Mm-hmm. And that is the ideal that sort of is the through line for what is best about America. And Lincoln recognized that and sort of gave it oomph. And then Martin Luther King comes along and appeals to quote unquote white America by telling them you're not living up to your own best version of yourself. Right. Right. And that's why I think the Martin Luther King speech is so much better than the identity politics thing that we get today. Cause like the identity politics thing we get today, slavery never shrinks in the rear view mirror. Right. right? It's always right. right behind us rather than, what, and to Barack Obama's credit, he acknowledged there was progress, you know, mm-hmm. that we moved on. And But I'll, back to the nationalism thing, um, you know, I, I guess, and we don't have to dwell on it forever, but, you know, everybody in the Civil War thought they were fighting for nationalism. Yes. Of some kind or another. Of course. Right? Yeah. And so this gets to the problem that I had, and I'll let listeners to judge for themselves, but Rich goes back and forth that whenever I criticize nationalism, he says, Nat, what, Jonah... Nationalism is just this. Mm-hmm. And then when he's actually making the case for nationalism, he says, well, I'm in favor of benign nationalism. I'm mm-hmm. in favor of nationalism that is tempered by conservatism and religious faith and all of these other things. And I'm like, well, you we can't have it both ways. Either nationalism, qua nationalism, is just a good in and of itself. Yeah. Or... It needs these adjectives, mm-hmm. right? And so clearly some of the nationalists fighting in the Civil War were wrong, mm-hmm. and some of them were right. Mm-hmm. And the every country that fought in World War II was fighting to one extent or another with nationalist passions, including the supposed champions of global communism, the you know, the Soviets, because they called that war they didn't call that war the war for, you know, class revolution and workers of the world united. It was the great patriotic, patriotic war. war for Mother Russia. Mm-hmm. Pretty nationalist stuff. Mm-hmm. And and so this is this is the problem I have with it's this uh, shell game that when you criticize nationalism it and, and Yoram Hazoni does this too. They have these very humble, simple, how can you be against what nationalism? It just says that nations are good. Yeah. And then when they're on the offense, they have to actually acknowledge that there's these other forms of nationalism that are very bad. And that's my, that's my only real point about it is that nationalism is at best amoral. It's like fire. 
Yeah. You can use fire to cook food and warm, keep children from freezing, or you can use fire to burn down orphanages, right? It's like violence. They're good. With anything amoral, any tool, any weapon, the object isn't evil or good. It's right. what you do with it, yeah. right? And that's the, how I view nationalism. When I hear benign nationalism, I almost think of like, I'm, I'm for donuts that taste good and don't make you fat. Right. Yeah, well, no, but, but there, there is benign nationalism. World War II, yeah. America was nationalistic and good because we won a we won an important war. Right. I mean, there know? are moments. I mean, you know, there are moments. You know, absolutely, where it can be. I mean, but the the, the my thing, point is when you say benign nationalism, benign is just another word for good. So when you say good nationalism is good, I'm like, okay, well, that's a tautology, yeah, right? Right. And I would say, I mean, look. I think if we focus, if, if nationalism becomes a motivating element in our politics, I think it's going to divide us more mm-hmm. because we have really two competing notions and ideas of what, quote, real America is. Right. Because as soon as you get into nationalism, you start to get into what is the nature of this nation. And, you know, so on the one side, you have sort of like, you know, I live in, quote, unquote, real America. Like mm-hmm. you have... All the people around me sort of think that the culture that we have, you know, this sort of, you know, we, we own guns, we're God-fearing, we go to church, we, um, you know, all, you know, sort of like that, you know, it's like the America of a classic Chevy truck ad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is that's real America. And Kevin Williamson writes about this. And it's sort of, so this is what America is. And this stuff you see on the coasts is an intrusion on that. And, right. And a perversion of that. And then... But as Kevin writes very eloquently, they're just as American. Right. But their their problem is, and they say, we are the America that should be and the America that will be, you know, sort of the progressive ideas. Yeah. So the, you've got these two competing ideas, very deeply held cultural conflict about what real America is. And I don't think either one of them is going to attain dominance anytime right. soon. I mean, they're so deep-seated and they're located in geography and faith and culture and we're sort of sorting more and more. And so that's what worries me because nationalism traditionally is sort of a blood and soil sort of thing. And if your cultural blood and your soil are increasingly separate, right. that's a big problem as we saw in you know 1859 1860 1861 right and so that's something that i really really worry about yeah so i have a similar concern i mean let's let's just for the sake of clarity define nationalism exactly as rich does as a kind of social solidarity patriotic thing that is a wonderful thing right, right. for the sake of argument let's just say it's an absolutely wonderful thing um it, i still by making it the centerpiece of one party's political agenda it it makes that a partisan thing yeah and it reminds me of remember the jackass in florida who wanted to burn the quran yes yes right? yes uh-huh. so now i think burning the quran i think burning any holy book is an evil act mm-hmm. and um and particularly when it's done purely as a way of inflicting a wound on religious people, right? Mm-hmm. I would feel that way about the Torah, about the New Testament, about the Quran. doesn't matter. I just think it's... In, burning books is gross to me, right? Right. But I'm pretty sure you have a right to do it. Yeah. You know, and... <laughs> 
what I hated about those kinds of episodes is they're so Alinskyite, right? Or actually, what they really are is is Leninist. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the worse the better, right? Mm-hmm. Heighten the contradictions, force everyone to take a side. Yes, and so. I resent being told, I, I resent being forced because of my commitment to free speech and my problem with the government getting involved in these things, being forced into the pro Quran burning column. Right? <laughs> right. You know, it just makes me mad. But mm-hmm. if I am forced to choose, mm-hmm. if I only get two choices, mm-hmm. put a guy in jail for burning the Quran or let him burn the Quran, I'm going to, shit, I'm going to burn the Quran, you right. know, and or the Bible or the flag or any yeah, of these yeah. kinds of, right? And um, I feel like it's some similar dynamic going on when you try to say we are the party of patriots. We're mm-hmm. the party. Of, we're the party that loves America. Yeah. Because then, first of all, because of the negative polarization that we have in our politics, people take the contrary point of view. You know, Democrats are more pro free trade than they have ever been, and it's not because they've been boning up on Adam Smith, <laughs> right, or on Bastiat. It's mm-hmm. because Trump doesn't like free trade. So all of a sudden, Democrats just say, "Well, then I'm in favor of it," and yeah. uh, and Republicans are more protectionist than they have ever been. Mm-hmm. If you start making these apple pie things that we're all supposed to share, the one, the few things that hold us together, linchpins of your partisan agenda, you're going to get people to push away from it rather than attract them to it. Yes, that's true. Um, and it kind of remember, you know, Kamala Harris when she launched her presidential campaign, she was on Morning Joe, and she was asked, you know. Um, is there any hope for America? Are we just too divided? And she says, and she tries to do this whole, no, we're really, we have so much more in common than we don't. All of us, all Americans, they, they know what it's like to worry about finding retirement. They know what it's like <laughs> worried about to like worry about their kids or to worry about uh, finding a job. None of it described anything about being an American. Right. It was only, it was basically bipedal carbon-based life forms share all of these states yes. of mind, right? Yes. That's not nationalism. Mm-hmm. That's just like, here's why we... And her the assumption of all of it was the state needs to therefore provide these things. Mm-hmm. That's not nationalism necessarily either, right? It's just statism and progressivism and cosmopolitanism and a kind of banal stupidity. But it that's shows... Democrats can't even find any language to talk about America as America, right. you know? And that's in part because they feel like, I'm not going to give aid and comfort to the people who talk about how much they love America. Right. Well, that's almost like saying, well, you know, is there any hope for Sunni and Shia? And saying, well, you know, they both like soccer. That's right. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, so surface. So, like, remember Sting, do the Russians love their children, too? Yes. Yes, they do, but that's not, not going to get us very far. Not going to get us far at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, no, that, I think that's exactly right. And and how you know it's interesting though that there was this reactive moment in the in the presidential election where when Trump was sort of ragging on America, yeah, the Democrats draped themselves in the flag, yeah, 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 yeah. and then Trump wraps his arm around America and or around the flag to the extent that he calls for the termination uh, of these fo- kneeling football players, yeah, and then you have city council members in these blue areas like kneeling before a city council meeting yeah. and you're just you know everything is so stinking reactive yeah yeah no i mean that's that's i mean this podcast's called a remnant for the remnant for a yes. reason you know it's because like <laughs> i think the democrats are incredibly stupid in how they're behaving and um and 
I was pretty convinced for a very long time that, that Trump was a goner for re-election. Mm-hmm. But that was back before the Democrats really started to signal that they were in favor of infanticide, that they were in favor of truly socialized medicine, that they were in favor of not just... They, were, they weren't just opposed to a wall on the border, which I can kind of understand, even though I have my disagreements. But they started talking about tearing down the existing wall. Yeah, right. You know? I mean, it's just... The ones that many of them voted for. Yeah. Yes. It's just, it's, it, it, and that kind of knee-jerkery on both sides. I mean, that's the thing that kind of drives me crazy about... You wrote a good post about this in the corner um, right after the Mueller thing came out mm-hmm. about how there were all these people dunking on you mm-hmm. and, and you'd actually ask me whether I was going to respond to something which I didn't end up responding mm-hmm. to because there's just certain people I just, if I respond to them, I give them too much credit and it's, <laughs> it's very hard for me not to do. Right. But anyway, I got a lot of that stuff too about how disappointed I must be about the Mueller thing or some jackass at the Federalist who I'd never heard of was talking about how I was a fake conservative, <laughs> right. which is another big talking point out there, right? Oh, huge. And yeah. the thing is, is that, that like, I... I legitimately and honestly think that Jen Rubin is a fake conservative, right? I mean, mm-hmm. she's like, just, she's just, or she was a fake conservative, and we know she was a fake conservative because she changed her mind on every conservative thing, right? Max Boot wasn't a fake, fake conservative. He just didn't really understand what conservatism was and could not handle the cognitive dissonance of somebody he hated supporting positions that he held. So mm-hmm. he started pulling on a thread and his conservatism just went away, right? right. Um, Bill Crystal's not a fake conservative. No. He's, he's making some tactical mistakes, I would argue, but he's, you know, he isn't, he's not also pro-choice or anything like that. And so I've been going through these like mental exercises trying to figure out, okay, what, what would a serious person say is evidence of me being a fake conservative? And... I've become a little more concerned about global warming than I used to be. So, mm-hmm. okay, that's an honest change of mind. I'm much more outspoken about how much I care about, like, endangered species stuff than I used mm-hmm. to be. Uh, the gay marriage stuff, I was opposed to gay marriage, but I was never, like, crazy passionate about it. Mm-hmm. I was for civil partnerships when back that, when that was heresy. Now, other than that, there's right. like nothing else, you right, know? Right. And, but so, but when you define your political ideology, basically, when the cornerstone of it is simply whether or not you are pro or con a single individual, right? then of course I'm a fake conservative, right? right? I mean, if it's purely a loyalty oath, yeah, then I'm not swearing loyalty to Donald Trump, then I must be a fake conservative. And that's a, it's a weird conflation of partisan loyalty to ideological conviction. And the fact that so many people can't see that, I find kind of fascinating. It is amazing. And, squir- and scary. You know? Well, and I think that, that they would, many people would say, well... The reason why you are a, quote, fake conservative is that you're not supporting the primary instrument of conservatism. Sure. Okay. And, but, the you know, a lot of that is is dramatically overblown. Mm-hmm. The, the extent to which Donald Trump is sort of the central figure in key cultural battles. I was just talking to our, uh, in our National Review Institute Regional Fellows, a great program. And I said, you know, look, if you want to talk about religious liberty and, and free speech... 99 out of 100 of these fights are not with the federal government. Yeah. It's with state it's state and local governments. Um, if you want to talk about the cultural battles that everyone is worried about, like the, the public shaming and the pile-ons and all of that stuff, um, you know, we're kind of on our own on that. Like yeah. the, the president of the United States is not going, does not have the power to tell Apple to stop boycotting a state. 
Right, right. You right. know, um, or even, you know, remember the Covington Catholic situation. Donald Trump cannot do one darn thing about that. Yeah. You know, the, so one of the things I, I hate is the fundamentally disempowering notion that says he is our champion. Yeah, yeah. When we have so many tools at our disposal. Yeah other than this politician to advance our values and our ideas. And sometimes relying on a politician is downright counterproductive right. to doing that, especially when it's that politician. And so, you know, I, I object to this very fundamental notion that he's some sort of primary instrument of advancing the conservative idea. If he is, holy crap, we're in some trouble, I think, yeah. over the long run. But, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I get the same thing. It's, you know, you're a counterfeit conservative, and I, I'm with you. I, I call myself climate concerned, mm-hmm. um, and I'm puzzled as a climate concerned person, for example, why there isn't more of an embrace of nuclear power. Right. You know, an existing technology that right. could really help, and why aren't people falling all over themselves to embrace that? Um, I'm, that's an interesting question to me. Um, you know, uh, and I've always been a civil libertarian. Right. And when you're a civil libertarian and a conservative is under is under fire, everyone thinks you're an awesome conservative. Right, right, right. When you're a civil libertarian and, you know, and I extend that more broadly, I'm a cultural civil libertarian. I don't want people shamed out of their expression either. Mm-hmm. So when I wrote things saying, look, I don't agree with Colin Kaepernick kneeling, but by golly, don't call for a boycott of the NFL any more than you don't want to people boycotting a you know a state or a person because they're engaging in a speech you like okay so let, let, me, let me take a sharp detour here because i've been meaning to ask you about this for a while and you just reminded me so uh, i gave a big speech recently it was off the record but it's this idea i'm kind of obsessed with i've talked about this a bit on the podcast uh you've all has got a really fantastic book that is going to be coming out fairly soon on this stuff or at least I'm pretty sure it's pretty fantastic from having talked to him about all of this and read him on all this. So part of Yuval's argument, which I also agree with, he came at this from a different angle, but it's the same argument, is that um, part of our problem in this country is that our understanding of what the purpose of an institution is is changing, right? Mm-hmm. I, mean, we're, we talk, I talk a lot on here. I've had Tim Carney on. You know, you know we, mm-hmm. we talk about the role of civil society and how important it is, and that's really, really where the action is and all that kind of stuff. But what is an institution, right? So what is an institution? If you talk to an economist, an institution is essentially just a rule, Mm -hmm. right? But if you talk to a normal person, an institution, it may not necessarily be a building, but it's a custom, it's a norm, it's a Mm -hmm. group, it's a mediating structure, whether it's a bowling league or whatever, right? And so the what do institutions traditionally do? They constrain behavior and they mold Ideas and expectations to conform with the good of the institution, mm-hmm. right? And that's certainly true of religion as an institution, right? right. It's certainly true of bowling leagues, right? Uh, yeah. Bowling league, it doesn't require a lot from you, but one of the things it requires you is that you bowl. Show up on time. You show up on time. You may have to wear a shirt that you'd be embarrassed to wear outside. I actually personally mm-hmm. love bowling shirts, yeah. but... Practice. Uh, pre- show up for practice. I mean, there are things mm-hmm. that you have to do to be part of any institution, and they shape you. The Marines are one of the best examples of an institution that basically takes one kind of person and produces a wholly different kind of person, right? So historically, that's what institutions should be understood as, as these things that may be in buildings or they just may be ideas, 
but that they, they shape character towards the ends of the institution that at the end of the process, the individual is enriched because of. Mm -hmm. So part of you all's argument, part of my argument, is that um, we increasingly, I would argue from my book about the rise of romanticism, but we increasingly see institutions less as things that shape us and more as platforms upon which we can perform. Yes, I, right. Yeah. So the I the speech I gave about this was all about the two par how the party system mm -hmm. has fallen apart. We're the only major system, major country, de major democracy in the world where um, the parties no longer have the power to pick their own candidates because mm -hmm. because of primaries starting in 1972, we just basically handed this off to the voters, and we get a certain result. And so you look at. Bernie Sanders, who's actually a better example of this than Donald Trump even. Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders, lifelong independent and socialist, constantly at war with the Democratic Party, uses 2016, uses the Democratic Party purely as a platform for his own agenda. Yes. Right? Donald Trump, not a Republican, uses the Republican Party purely as a platform to perform for his own agenda. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, people forget, the one of the reasons why we got Jeremy Corbyn is that the the, the Labor Party idiotically basically did the equivalent of handing things over to primary voters where they said you can register as a member of the Labor Party for like three pounds. Mm -hmm. So all of these Greens, Socialists, yes. you know, basically everybody that, you know, the political equivalent of everybody that Slim Pickens describes in Blazing Saddles as part of their coalition of evil, you know, yeah. uh, rustlers and wranglers, and blah, 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 they all come in, they don't care about the Labor Party. They only care about Jeremy Corbyn. And Jeremy Corbyn uses the Labor Party as his platform. So Colin Kaepernick is a great example of my point, where, or of this performative part, right? Yeah. Where the, the institution of the NFL is for a specific purpose, to play football and play it on TV and let people have the experience of watching football. Colin Kaepernick comes in and he uses the NFL as a platform to perform for something that is external to what that institution is about. True. And you find this more and more in across the company. Like, what's her face? The, the woman from Theranos, right? Yes, Elizabeth Holmes. She, right. Yeah. She wanted to be Steve Jobs. So yeah. she uses the company to as a vehicle, and she lies and cheats and abuses the institution for her own ends. Um, journalism is rife with this stuff, where everybody yes. wants to have their own brand and their own person. So I guess the question I want to ask is, is that, there is, I think this is a serious real problem because it accelerates the decline of institutions. On the other hand, I, the, the, as, a, you're, as a free speech fetishist in a way that I am not, mm -hmm. or an absolutist, I should say, mm -hmm. uh, or as Judge Bork used to call it, a free speech voluptuary. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a real there's a tension here, right? Yeah. Because these people who are belonging to institutions, they should surrender. Arguably, as a as a normative thing, they should surrender their identity a little bit more to these institutions. But as citizens, they there may be no way for us to keep them from doing that. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So let me let me sort of channel what I, I can at once when you said that about Colin Kaepernick. Uh -huh. um, the sound you heard was a million progressive listeners crying out in anguish. <laughs> and let me sort of channel a point that they have that I think is actually pretty valid. But when conservatives hear it, they immediately shut it out. Uh -huh. But here's the point. They would say, wait a minute. The NFL has already engaged in something performative 
outside of its fundamental goal of of uh, playing football, uh-huh. and that is the performative patriotism. Yeah. So you have, and you know, you'll have an American flag like the si- sometimes the yeah. size of the whole football field. You'll have an F eighteen flyover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll have the God Bless America and the national anthem. Sometimes none of that is inherent to yeah. playing football. And so, you know, I, I had a lot of friends who said, you know, when I show up for work, if I engaged in a uh, a political protest, I would be fired immediately. Oh, I got it. I said, mm-hmm. but let me ask you this. When you show up for work, are you live broadcast on YouTube yeah. uh, with a national anthem, with another song, with fla- waving the flag? Um, it's just, it's so the NFL did something that is... And a lot of us, and, and we think it's not controversial because we like it. Right. And it's this really performative patriotism. And, and if you think the NFL does it, man, some of these SEC football games, it's yeah. almost hilarious because you have these super progressive universities yeah. who for once, you know, six Saturdays a year on their home field, it's like hashtag America. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And so there's a bit of performative patriotism going on there. Which is sometimes so over the top that even... I also don't want to go pure George Carlin on you, but there's also a lot of nationalism. I mean, it's an yes. aggressive, <laughs> you right. know, like acquisition of territory, you know, yes. long bomb blitz. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So, so in that sense, I think the NFL, you know, had done something. Most of its people was uncontroversial because its performative aspect was there was a lot of consensus behind it. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but you're right. And then... The real, I mean, a, a just a sterling example of this is sort of the woke capitalism we're seeing from these corporations. Right, right. So my uh, Citibank is now a platform for gun control ideology. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Um, you know, Apple is a platform for social justice activism. And it is absolutely rife. And I think we've got, you have to fight a two-front war on this. One war is... Just because you're upset about the way in which people exercise their liberty, resist the temptation to use any sort of force or sanction to deny the rights of someone else that you you would like to exercise yourself. But at the same time, use the force of your persuasion to say, you know, this is bad for us, Apple. You know, I, I don't begrudge any one of your executives on your own time with your own money. Have at it. Right. Have at it. But to use the, you know, what, I mean, is it almost worth a, is it worth a trillion dollars now? To use the trillion dollar power of this corporation to punish your ideological enemies is bad for us. And so it's, you know, but a lot of people have just given up on persuasion. They say, Apple's doing bad things. How can there be reprisal? Big tech does bad things. How can, what can we do about it? Break them up? You know, I'm, I'm kind of curious as to how, like, if you took Google and turned it into four Googles, how f- one woke Google, uh, how turning one woke Google into four woke Googles pro- solves the problem. Right, 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 right. But um, we we have to resist the urge to be punitive and indulge the ability to be persuasive, and we can't give up on that. Yeah, I mean, I agree. In, or I think I agree with most of that. It's It's a really complicated multifaceted problem like I'm sure you would agree that somebody in the Marines can't take the knee at, oh, of course yeah right. but that's a de- that's a different I, I agree because yeah. it's a category it's yeah. a different category of yeah. thing but it's a as as simply as as metaphor or as analogy 
it's a useful way to think about it. It used to be that there were lots of institutions in this country that people understood they if they indulge their performative side too much, mm-hmm. they were going to risk their membership in these institutions that mattered to them enormously. Right. Whether it was their church, their business, their country club, their community, their neighborhood. You know, Some of these institutions didn't even actually have names. They were just sort of essentially... Mm-hmm. Classes, you know, yeah. and um, and so one of the things I'm sort of obsessed by is how the culture more and more and more creates an aristocracy of fame. Mm-hmm. Like that is your way of becoming a important person, just being famous. I mean, like the number of young women who have decided that the best way for them to become high status, famous people is to is to come out with a sex tape, it's not a lot of them, right? But it's way—it's far too high above zero. <laughs> and um, and the number of people who you know, this is a point that James Q. Wilson used to make about how there's an inherent tension in Western civilization um, between self-discipline and self-expression. Mm-hmm. Self-discipline has been taken it in the neck for a while now. I mean, yeah, the, the the whole the original idea of virtue and 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 individualism was this idea of mastering certain uh, understanding of virtue, certain understanding of, of, of what what freedom was. I mean, that's yeah. what the liberal arts was, right? Yeah. And what does it say in America the Beautiful? Confirm thy soul with self-control. Mm-hmm. And now it is, you know, express thy soul with a YouTube channel. Yes. And <laughs> that's a really, you know, from Instagram, all I think it's all this performative stuff, which is inherently destructive to institutions. Yes. And so... Figuring out how to have institutions have more bite over people, have be able to, and, and I'm not talking about like imposing institutions on people. I want people to be able to find the institutions that they like. The trick is you have to once they find the institutions that they like, we have to have some tolerance for them to be tough. Yeah. Right. So, so I have two two responses to that. One is what you've just described at the beginning is I like the perfect description of ordered liberty. Right. You know, it's the it's you know something Alexandra and I talk about on our podcast constantly, which right. is the role of the government is to secure your liberty. The role of the citizen is to exer- is to use that liberty for virtuous ends. And you know, it's the twin declarate twin statements I talk about constantly of our founding. Here you have the most famous, which is. Uh, Jefferson's, you know, we're endowed by a creator with certain unalienable rights. And then you have Adams in this, what should be far more famous letter to the Massachusetts militia saying, our constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It's wholly right. inadequate for the governance of any other. And this performative aspect is is liberty without virtue often. Right. Uh, now, when I'm talking about sort of the libertine performative aspects, but here's the thing that's happening now with these institutions, many of them, is they're disciplined all right disciplining you into being performative. Yeah, no, exactly. And and so, you know, if you're at Facebook, I mean, and I've talked to these folks, if you're at Google and you are a conservative of a similar mindset to you and I, the pressure to be performative in the social justice arena is overpowering yeah. and you feel like you risk. So that institution, oddly enough, weirdly enough, it has bite all right. Yeah. Um, but its bite is towards the performative impulse. And and now that's not all corporations now. I mean, but that I think that is, you know, if part of your job description is you can look, learn to code, 
don't ban us Twitter for saying that, but learn to code and also learn to social justice. Those are the yeah. two things. I mean, that's, you know, we're, we're kind of in a, in a, you know, we're, we're in a position where these institutions are biting and they're biting in a very specific way. And it's, it's harmful. Yeah. I would add though, there's a third dynamic to it. And this is where yeah. it gets that my thing about romanticism. We teach kids from a very early age in this culture and not just in the schools, but particularly in the schools, go with your gut. Yeah. Go with your instincts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're both parents. We were both kids. That's one of the great advantages parents have over kids is that unlike kids, yeah. we've been kids. They haven't been parents. Yes. But um, uh, it is like literally, not figuratively the way Joe Biden means literally, it is literally one of the dumbest things a parent can do Oh my gosh! is tell their kids, go with your instincts, right? Yeah. I mean, like, go with your gut, you know? Personally, I wouldn't run with scissors, but you, you, you be true to yourself. You yeah. know? <laughs> and, and so that feeds into the performative thing because mm-hmm. when you raise people that the highest moral good is being authentic to your own feelings, true to yourself, right? Then you can't bottle that up inside. You have to let the world know that you're true to yourself. Yes. Yeah. And when we teach, you know. Like I, one of the things I always loved in The Sopranos was how Tony Soprano would go and say, "Whatever happened to Gary Cooper? Right, the strong, silent mm-hmm. type who didn't share all of his feelings." You mm-hmm. know, and I'll, I'll admit I am more hypocritical than a lot of people, particularly at National Review. Certainly, you know, I think anybody at National Review is that I am, I'm an oversharer, you know, <laughs> in my yeah. writing. I mean, yeah. I, I speak in kind of that vernacular a little yeah. bit, but. It's a really poisonous thing in the culture, and it lends itself to this performative thing, because if the highest value is authenticity and the worst sin is hypocrisy, the only way to prove your authenticity is by not having any unexpressed thoughts or feelings, (laughs) right? Right. Well, and I'd layer on top of that another big parenting error. We're going to, this is going to turn into like parenting class <laughs> and which I'm, I'm you know my, I have a 20 year old an 18 year old an 11 year old and I'm still learning sure. every day and I would say that every like every serious parenting mistake that I have made in my life was centered around I, I from the get go I from the get go I you know I grew up with great parents and never once did I hear go with your gut yeah so I, I was able to model their their you know parenting but every single parenting mistake that I've made was one that where I prioritized unduly my child's happiness. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's another big aspect of this. And this is something like Lukian, uh, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt talk about the extent to which there's like the it was once the term was helicopter parenting. Now you're hearing snowplow parenting, yeah, which is terrifying. Yeah, and so yeah. you're prioritizing constantly the day to day taking the temperature of your child's happiness. Yeah, and a lot of these guys are coming into institutions having been trained since birth that the authority the the goal of authority is to make sure you're happy right and 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 part of the happiness is also being liberated to go with your gut right and so you're performative and you've got to be performative or you're not going to be happy and if you're not going to be happy there's going to you know then and it it all just sort of builds and builds yeah. on top of it's, it's also just not true right right the 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 I mean, happiness is this weird concept, right? It can mean just like giddy, yay, ice cream. Yeah. But it can also mean, what's the, this is why I need Jack here, the Greek word, uh, euthymania, whatever. It's the, yeah, I'm it, out of my depth already. It's, yeah, it's, 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 um, <laughs> it's, uh, true contentment, satisfaction, yes. right? You know, there's the, mm-hmm. a, a soulful happiness, yes. right? Yes. And, um, and my guess is, is that 
there are more Marines who experience that kind of happiness. Yes. Even though on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. not much happiness. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, you know, 20 mile hike, full pack, yeah. not a happy day. But at the end of basic training or at the end of your service, you, because you were self-denying, yeah. you have a much greater satisfaction, right? And that's a hard thing to teach if on yes. day-to-day it's like always going for the sugar high. Yep. Right? Well, and that, that's the mistake that I'm talking about is the day-to-day taking your kid's temperature, going yeah. for the sugar high, which is a huge temptation because people you love your kids. You don't want them to be happy. Right. And I mean, unhappy. And um, but yeah, that, the point you just made about the Marines, I was just talking to our colleague, Mark Wright, who's yeah. just finished officer basic in the Marine Corps. And I said, how do you feel about it? And, you know, to condense a longer conversation, he said, there was never a day when I was there in the middle of the misery that I was saying, man, I'm so glad I'm doing this right now. <laughs> but he also never, not, there was not a day where he said, I shouldn't be doing this. Right yeah, now. yeah. And, and that, that is absolutely true. I mean, even, you know, I, I reflect back, I'm now, it's hard to believe this, I'm 10 and a half years removed from my deployment to yeah. Iraq, which was the hardest, most gut, gut-wrenching, devastating time of my life in like 50,000 different ways. And I don't regret it for one sure. second. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I mean, that's that's the distinction. I mean... Um, so it, like I tell people, people ask me, do you like writing books? I was like, I hate writing books. I like having written books. Yes. You know, and you, you can't experience that without doing the first part. You exactly. Know? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So uh, as some people know by now, and I keep dropping hints about, I'm in the middle with Steve Hayes and some other people of trying to stand up this new venture. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about it here. But one of the things that we're already learning very quickly is the challenge of trying to hire people, something it's not like I've never done it in the past. I did hire Jack Butler, but um, and I, you know, when I was a television producer, I would occasionally hire people or at least be involved in the decision making process. But this is sort of a quantumly different thing. I don't know if you can use quantumly as an adjective, but I just did it anyway, or an adverb, I should say. Anyway, but it's one of the things you know that has made me appreciate more and more our sponsor today, which is ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective, 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter Get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash D-I-N-G-O. ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Well, I have a question for you. Okay. Because um, we've been agreeing a lot. Uh-oh. But you tweeted out that you did not agree with any of our... No. Okay, yeah. Go ahead. To, to go ahead. any of us hapless sad sacks on the uh, In Our Editors podcast when we were breaking down the aftermath of the Mueller. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the at least the preliminary, the release of the top line conclusions of the Mueller report. Okay. So I was curious. I, I pinged you. I was like, what did we do wrong? Yeah. <laughs> and I ignored your tweet. Yes. Uh, um so, first of all, uh, before we get into that, we should hear from our sponsor. I don't know who our sponsor is because we're doing this on the fly. Okay, but we'll great. F- 
blah, blah, blah. All right, so I highly encourage you, strongly encourage you to go back and do a close textual analysis of that tweet. Because <laughs> okay. what I said was, this is the first episode of The Editors where I strongly disagree. Something like, this is the first episode of The Editors where I strongly disagreed with everybody involved to one extent or another. Right, yes. Right? So, yes, like, yes. There, there are things you said that I agree with and things that Rich said that I agree with. Uh-huh. Um, but usually, depending on the issue, when I listen to The Editors, and for listeners who don't know, The Editors is this group podcast that National Review puts out. Um uh, usually when I listen to it, depending on the issue, I'm either, I'm, I'm almost always either Team David or Team Charlie. Right. Particularly when you guys agree, odds are I'm going to agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Um, and so, part, right, so uh, let me break this down because, you know, Charlie called me and asked me to, and we argued about it for about a half hour. So, <laughs> um, that's fantastic. Okay, so, Basically, all of my disagreements with you, mm-hmm. which I assume are the ones you're most interested in. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, Rich was wrong frequently. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, boil down to things you didn't say rather than things you did gotcha. say. Gotcha. Okay. okay, so here's my thing. Rich, I have the strongest disagreements with. You know, he went around tweeting, congratulating all of these people for their wonderful coverage of all of this. And the the upshot of that conversation, which was in some ways mirroring the conversation that you're hearing on Fox News and across the right, was Trump is exonerated of collusion, which I agree with. Mm-hmm. Trump is exonerated from collusion. Yeah. Um, that, but there was almost no acknowledgement. And so, and so, oh, and that the media has beclowned itself, yeah. right? And the media, by the media, we generally mean the me, the parts of the media, however defined, that got way over their skis buying into the Trump collusion narrative, yeah. right? Promising that there's evidence there. The people who, I mean, one of my favorite things, and sociologically, I think it's and psychologically, it's fascinating. On MSNBC for the last two years, anytime there was a slightly inconvenient news story. They would all almost hold hands and say, "Remember, we don't know everything that Robert Mo- that 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 Mueller knows." Yes, right. right. And exactly. This is sort of like if we click our heels heels three times together, you know. Yes. Like, and it was this in a cheap and shabby way. It was a kind of a you know version secular creepy version of God and his infinite wisdom like we yeah. don't know what what God is thinking and we can never second guess it's like we don't know what Mueller really you know he's all knowing mm-hmm. you know yeah. and so agree with criticizing all those people that's fine BuzzFeed made an ass of itself a couple times all that that's fine CNN yeah. fine but the narrative that we are getting that is still going strong now that Trump is now blaring out there is that it was crazy for anybody to ever think there might be some there there. Right. And to listen to Rich talk about how giddy he was and how, how how burdened he was to have to acknowledge that that maybe there was we don't know for sure the collusion's vague. Yeah. It was my gut that it was, blah blah blah. But now we know that that the media made fools of themselves. Trump was completely exonerated. And the thing is, I think that's nonsense. I mean, honestly, yeah. I just do. Like, uh, from calling on the Russians to hack the thing, and it yeah. wasn't... And I, I know that Rich writes that it was it a was joke. just a joke, but 
Trump came, was asked a follow-up question of that press conference, and he came back to it, and he said, no, I'm not joking. I mean, he wasn't joking. Right. His campaign manager is probably going to die in prison, the, the, the various indictments. Uh, the fact that they took the meeting in Trump Tower <laughs> yeah. proved that there was at least a willingness, right? And so there is this... They directed Roger Stone, the campaign reached out to Roger Stone... To ask him to create the back channel with WikiLeaks—that's in the indictment, right? You know, it's it's alleged in the indictment. You know, it'll it'll be proven in court, uh, maybe, but it's that is a court filing that the special counsel's office has made that that happened, right? So, the narrative that is shaping up on the right, which I just I've been dissenting from vociferously here, is that it was outrageous you know the the Mueller probe was born in sin and all that we don't have to get into all that right um, but it was outrageous and idiotic and con- paranoid conspiracy theory paranoid yeah. to think Trump would ever do something like this yeah. when and that's fine to a certain extent if you then follow up by arguing that he wasn't capable of doing this because he lacks the management skills and discipline to pull off something like this. But the implication that we're hearing on the right is that it is outrageous to assume he would be ethically capable of doing this. And I think it is obvious and already established that he's ethically capable of doing this. He wasn't hindered because of his patriotism. He was hindered because (laughs) he lacked the opportunity or the skill to do it. And that doesn't mean that we should therefore say he's guilty anyway. You know, he's exonerated on this. He didn't do it. The government, you know, has cleared him of that charge. Fine. But we're now talking about him as if he's like the this martyr in this innocent guy who made the investigation worse at every step of the way, fed conspiracy theories at every step of the way, did things as a candidate and as a president, you know, from the 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 presser in Helsinki with the friggin' head of Russia saying Maybe we should let the Russians take lead on this investigation. <laughs> I know, I, mean, I know. And and that all got memory hold in that conversation. No, That's I my agree. problem. I agree, I agree with that 100%. And I, you know, so we were talking beforehand, uh, like every now and then, when I get a critique on something in the podcast, I'll go back and listen and I'll say, because these podcasts are all extemporaneous. It's not right. like we're reading statements. And I think, did I fairly summarize my thought? Did I fairly summarize my opinion? And I went back and I listened to that and I thought, if you just listened to that podcast and hadn't read anything that I'd written sure. around it, you would think, um, I didn't think any of that stuff was a really big deal. Right. Um, and when the reality is, there, I, look, there, there were, part of all this dunking that's going on is the dumbest thing I've ever seen because... And I did a, a thread about this because some of the dunkers are also conspiracy theorists. No, that's exactly right. They have this wild conspiracy about how this all this investigation started because they cannot even imagine that there was a credible basis for investigating right. Donald Trump. But I've looked at it. There's three components to this, three big questions. Question number one, was an investigation valid of this president in connection with Russia's efforts to influence the election on his behalf? And investigation of this president and his team. Was that valid? Yes. A thousand times yes. There is no circumstance in which any of these dunkers would look at the same set of facts applying to Hillary Clinton and say, oh, that's insane. There's no way. But how do we know? Because these same people are Clinton Foundation, Clinton Foundation, Clinton Foundation with, in many ways, less evidence of contacts. Right. 
So number one, was it valid? Yes. Number two, did it uncover troubling things? Holy cow, yes. Right. I mean, on what planet is it okay for the um, he, the the son of the president to pull in a campaign chair and the and his brother in law to take a meeting with a Russian lawyer promising dirt as part of a Russian plan to uh, Russian documents as part of a Russian plan to help Trump. Right. You do not say I love it to that. On what planet is it okay to reach out to this grifter Roger Stone and say, hey, like let's try to get some information from WikiLeaks? Um, you know, these are bad things. Why would you encourage Russia to hack emails? That why lie to Congress about the existence of an attempted business deal during the middle of the presidential campaign? Again, I keep putting on my hat of if Hillary had was trying to swing a multi-hundred million dollar business deal in Moscow in the middle of the campaign while saying curiously nice things about Vladimir Putin, all of this, you know, Hannity would be going four hours with like chirons on all sure. four sides. So is that a problem? Yes. Did it mean that Trump was a co-conspirator with the Russians? No. Right. But I had been arguing that forever. My whole theory, my theory that I kind of, you know, as the evidence began to settle on was, look, lots of people on the left, thanks largely to the Steele dossier, had this James Bond villain view of Trump, which was at odds with everything we know about him. And right. He was, all right, Mike Cohen, get to the bridge in Prague. And, right, right, right. You know, and all of this stuff. And, oh, my goodness, they've got compromat on me. And, you know, all of this stuff that this Bond villain thing, that the evidence just wasn't there for yeah. that. It was just not there. But what was there was this sort of Austin Powers, Dr. Evil, mm-hmm. bumbling, yeah. you know, oh, yeah, you know, um, hey, we want to we beat Hillary. People are completely unscrupulous around him. Um, willing to get information from anywhere, anyone. And then the thing that galls me is you will have these people who are these complete Trump defenders who will say, oh, that's just how you do oppo. Right. Which is not. It's case. not. Yeah. But then they'll turn around and say the Hillary Clinton steel dossier from Fusion D GPS is not how you do oppo. Right, right, right. I mean, so which is it, guys? Yeah. You know, so... Look, I mean, I'm glad. I mean, what kind of monster do you think I am if you would think that I would be unhappy that it turns out that our president is not actively conspiring with the... That would be the biggest political scandal since the vice president of the U.S. shot the former secretary of the Treasury. I mean, it would be nation-changing scandal. I'm glad. But can we at least deal honestly with what has happened to this point? Can we not? Can we not say this was wrong? Um, but, but no, we apparently we cannot say that this is wrong, but, right? And also, I mean, like the the defense, you know, you hear often is is my defense. It's usually buried late in in a in in the, when conservatives write it. But they'll say, you know, the idea that we would expect this sham, the shambolic campaign that Donald Trump was running to be able to have to coordinate with the Russians. Never made any sense to begin with, and I agree with that entirely. Right? Yeah, you know, um, that was always sort of that was the root of my collusion skepticism. Mm-hmm. Was I didn't think he had the chops to pull it off. Yeah, um, not that he's this great and glorious and honorable man, which no. I do not think he is. And um, and then when you but the thing is, then you point out that and people get angry at you about that, or get angry at me about that. Oh, and, and yeah, and then. And, but then you say, okay, well, 
what do you make of the fact that Papadopoulos and Manafort and Cohen and all these guys, you know, uh, what has been exposed about them? And then they make that exact argument. They're like, you know, you can't hold Trump accountable to that. You know, that, those are other people. It's his campaign manager and his lawyer of 10 years, you know. And either he's responsible for the shambolic nature of his campaign or he's not. And it's just this taking different arguments that contradict other arguments off the shelf when you need them thing that makes me, it's one of the things that makes me the most remnanty. Yeah. And so does all the resistance nonsense about how Barr is covering up the real oh report. It's all so stupid. It's so it, dumb. Yeah. So just, you know. Well, so let me, let me, can I just vent about something for a minute? Uh huh. Okay. I'm going to vent about this minimization of quote process crimes. Uh huh. Okay. So it is now, it is now, and look, I, I had a, I had a podcast with Ken White, Pope Hat. Uh huh where we talked about how the FBI has this great ability to get people to lie uh-huh. and then put the screws on them for lying to the FBI that then is, as an investigation tactic. That's a thing. It happens. Absolutely, it happens. Um, but this weird thing that after the right in 1998 went hammer on tongs after Bill Clinton for what? Process crimes. Sure, sure. Um, to then turn around and say, none of this is a big deal. Yeah. Like if if Michael Cohen lies to Congress, this isn't even the FBI. Yeah, this isn't the FBI trying to trick him. This is Michael Cohen deliberately lying to Congress with prepared testimony. Yeah, process crime. Yeah, yeah. Or that, you know, what's the big deal about, um, you know, Michael Flynn? He only took hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> from foreign governments and then had. Without and then proper, lied about it, and then yeah, and then and then didn't make proper disclosures, and then was actually in communications during relevant periods of the transition about policy impacting the people who had paid him. Yeah, yeah, you know, and you just go down the line again and again, and and you say, guys, look, if you hate process crimes, here's what I would recommend: Why don't you go ahead and submit revisions to the U.S. Criminal Code? Eliminating them, right, 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 right. Go, yeah, eliminate them because there's people right now in jail who've committed process crimes. But you're just—that is a tactic to try to push the conversation past the fact that people had contacts with Russians or tried to have contacts with Russians and lied about them, right? And lied about them in a criminal manner, and they knew when they were lying it could be criminal, right? And that's bad. Can I not say that's bad? Right. I mean, that, that yeah. No, it, it, it's it's. So one of the arguments you hear all the time is, you know, this is the Rich basically wrote a column like this saying, it turns out that Trump's behavior about the Mueller probe was because he was an innocent man, right? And to a certain extent, that's right. Yeah. You know, there's okay? an element of truth to that. Um, on the flip side, his insistence that that. It may have been Russia that was hacking, or it may have been a fat guy on his in, a, on, in, on a, in his basement, or it may have been China. Who really knows, right? Uh, his refusal to ever say anything negative about Vladimir Putin. Um, there were lots and lots of things that he said that do not stem rationally or logically in a straight line from his insistence that he was innocent. Right. Right. There were. The, 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 you can't go back like there's some things that he says oh it's a witch hunt and you can now retroactively say okay he was saying that because he knew he was innocent right 
you can't go back and say, well, America kills a lot of people too. And say, <laughs> oh, you were saying that because he's innocent, right? That didn't, right. It doesn't work. And there was just, my only point, or one of my only points is that the enormous amount of things that Trump did and said, we apparently now, it's been reported that he wanted to fire Mueller. He tried to fire Mueller, yeah. right? Um, and people, that at least goes to my point that he was ethically capable of obstructing justice. <laughs> he just, yeah. he caved to his advisors who said, you're crazy to do that. Yeah. And and so I, my problem is, is this idea that because you get off on the big charge, that all of a sudden that washes all the sin from you. Yes. And makes anybody who was suspicious of the behavior now renders them to be paranoid sufferers of Trump derangement syndrome, where yep. I think the Trump derangement syndrome is all around us, but I don't think I'm guilty of it. No, I mean, you know, to say that I'd be guilty of Trump derangement syndrome when I have two years of record of writing that I'm skeptical about the big collusion narrative yeah. and I'm skeptical about impre- uh, obstruction of justice is weird. Yeah, but, but you hear it everywhere. Everywhere. And, but because the, the notion is we live in this zero-sum game that says if... If you're vindicated on the big thing, you must be vindicated on, on everything. everything. Right. And then, even worse than that, then our conspiracy theory is true. Right, right. And and that's where I'm, I'm just, hold the phone, guys. Just stop it. Um, and, you know, another thing about the, the Trump nice comments or, or soft-peddling Putin, Putin criticism, we now know some of that was happening while these negotiations where he was, you know, Michael Cohen was attempting these Trump Tower negotiations. Right. Like, how does that, how, again, how is that not a problem? Right. And then the justification was he's just a businessman. Right. No, he's, a, he's an actual presidential candidate, and he's shaping American public opinion of one of our, what I believe is our chief geopolitical rival. And look, Republican approval rating of Vladimir Putin went up. Right. During that period. That's, that matters. That's consequential. Uh, well, it's funny. I didn't bring it up in my talk with Rich, but, like, those dudes who wear the T-shirts that say... I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat. Right. Square that with nationalism for me. If you're like, oh, yeah, they're nationalists. That's why they'd rather be Russians than a member of the other major American party. You yeah. know? I mean, yeah. that's weird stuff. It really is. It really is. And look, I'm just, I'm ready for this to be put to bed. I want to see the Mueller report. I want to see the Inspector General's report on FISA abuse. Because, look, I don't think that everything was kosher in the investigation. Yeah. You know, I've been a part of, going back to, um, gosh, law school, I had this really interesting, I interned for the Organized Crime Division of the U.S. Attorney's Office and got like a cup of coffee watching these sprawling organized crime investigations. And I'm not saying that the Trump administration is the Sopranos. Right. but one of the things you'll find is in a lot of these, in, in even going on that and, and looking at major American prosecutions, you'll find components and aspects of these that are bad. You right. know, you'll, you'll get suppression motions where you'll find out that in this part of the, uh, of the investigation, they violated a Fourth Amendment and you'll have evidence suppressed. But that doesn't mean that the whole thing is invalid. Right, right. And so I want to see, did FBI people commit acts of misconduct in the course of this, in this investigation? We got to know that. Sure. Right. But the right idea, but again, the idea that this thing is just the fruit of nothing but a deep state effort at a soft coup strikes me as, you know, I sometimes feel like when I see, and I I tweeted this out, that when I see one side of this arguing with the other, I feel like it's a, 
it is like a moon landing truther yelling fire can melt steel to nine eleven truther while the moon landing truther is looking for evidence of reflection of cameras in Neil Armstrong's mask. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like people forget the things they were saying about Mueller. And oh no, my gosh! And many of the people who are taking victory laps now were at least silent when. Uh, you know, a certain host at Fox News was saying that Mueller was one of the heads of the three deep state crime families. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of crazy conspiracy stuff that was aimed at Mueller, including all the witch hunt stuff. I mean, every single time mm-hmm. Trump said witch hunt, he was accusing Bob Mueller, who, you know, came from a privileged background, came out of Princeton, joined the Marines and went and fought in Vietnam of being an unpatriotic liar. And where does Mueller go for his apology? Well, how about a person who shall remain nameless and a publication that shall remain nameless who said it was uh, Stalin-esque, the Mueller investigation. In other words, like, you find the man, I'll find the crime. Right. So that applies to everybody, but the alleged ultimate target of the investigation who that guy just cleared? Right. No, exactly. What? and, And so, like, I feel... There are a handful of us. I mean, not the gloat, but anyone who's still listening probably agrees with us because <laughs> the people who disagree on this stuff get very angry. And, and they've already thrown their um, iPod out the window or their iPhone out the window. It seems to me that the, that the people who are most vindicated aren't the ones who argued at every moment and every turn that Trump is 100% innocent. It's crazy that to think he's would have done any of this kind of stuff. And it's it's it's... The people like you and me and Charlie and a handful of other people that held out the possibility that it was possible Trump did it, but also held out the possibility that Trump didn't do it Mm -hmm. and didn't get caught up in the insane binary that said either he's a traitor or that Mueller is a traitor, you know, and instead waited for the facts to come out. And I can't tell you how many times I would write my LA Times column saying I'm going to wait for the facts and the left would attack me and the right would attack me. And I was like... When is waiting for the facts like this betrayal of principle? You know, I just, it it really is crazy. And but I think a lot of this sort of dunking is it's sort of um, the what what's the, what would be the reverse of you doth protest too much? Yeah, yeah. it is. I am I am trying to assert that I am the authority on this now. Right, like that. It's almost like a power move to say. You must defer to my interpretation of events yeah. th- from this point forward. Yeah. Um, which I'm sorry, but no. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going to read the Mueller report as an as independently minded as a flawed human being can. Yeah. yeah. And you know, let the chips fall, fall where they may. Read the IG report about FISA. Uh, you know, potential FISA abuse. Let the chips fall where they may. Um, but there's an awful lot of that going on. It's a trying to establish authority. Yeah. And, and, you know, I just don't consent to that. Yeah. And the funny thing is, one of the only guys in our life who has, like, serious experiential authority to opine on this stuff was Andy McCarthy. Mm-hmm. And Andy kept his... I mean, I didn't agree with him at every stage of everything, yeah. but Andy kept his integrity the entire time. He was, you know, he refused to buy into a lot of the... I mean, he has criticism of Mueller, but he never said he was a bad... He was an evil man or a no. traitor or any of that kind of stuff. And... Whenever it, he, whenever the events truly required it of 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 Andy, he criticized Trump for his behavior, yeah. for his statements, and all that kind of stuff. He was one of the only guys out there who, you know, 
was touted. I, I, you know, I mean, I mean, you behaved admirably too. But my point is, is that he was the guy who was cited by the wildly pro-Trump people yes. as the authority. Yes, and a lot of people lose their mind when they become celebrities and that kind of thing, and they start not. telling the audience what they want to hear. And Andy never went over that line, and he really does does deserve to be congratulated. Oh heck it. yeah! Go back and read what he wrote after the um, after the Trump Tower meeting came to light. Yeah. You know, read what he's written multiple times when other facts have come to light. And for all those people who've said that Andy is spot on and he understands this stuff and he knows, you know, well, read what he's written about the threats to Trump from the Southern District of New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're like, you know, uh, so if I'm reading Andy McCarthy, you know, again, he and I disagreed on some things. And often it was a matter of disagreement on what to emphasize and what not to emphasize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we would read the same facts and I would believe one conclusion was more important than he would, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Um, but, but read what he's written about the Southern District of New York. And I'm no, I'm not the guy going, oh, I can't wait for the Southern District of New York. Yeah, to, me I don't, you know, whatever. But if you're going to say that Andy is prescient and Andy is an expert and Andy is the authority, read that. And it's sobering. Yeah. It's yeah, sobering. Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah, I respect the heck out of him. He has on multiple occasions, um, said tough things yeah no the the, the funny part about andy and all of this is that you know he's more i think he's more interested in seeing trump succeed than say i am Mm -hmm. but that's not a high bar um (laughs) and um uh though i want trump to put more conservative justice on the court and all that stuff Mm -hmm. but there is at times this sort of like tom cruise in jerry Maguire when he when when Andy writes about the Trump administration and of this kind of like help me help you yes. you know just shut up don't attack the judge don't do this yes. you know this is not helpful for you you yes. know well you know and that's that's a valid thing to do is to sort of say hey pay attention over here yeah, yeah, yeah. this is but yeah so i would say one of the inter- the differences you would see like if a, there was a breaking news about between me and andy so let's suppose there is news about the roger stone indictment there are two things that are that are interesting about that if he's already in cahoots with russia he doesn't need to reach out to roger stone and jerome corsi right right which is an interesting facet of this but if he is if people are saying um donald trump is this awesome awesome guy who is subject to a witch hunt why is he asking Roger Stone to reach out to Wiki? I mean, why is his campaign right, right. asking Roger Stone to reach out to WikiLeaks? So there's these two sort of stories about this. You know, one of the things that I'm sort of frustrated at is the, un- the inability of our side to own up to things that it would hold others to sure. easily. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna emphasize that because I, quite frankly, as part of all of this stuff. I want to preserve sort of a core of this movement that just sort of sees and responds to truth. Right. No, that's yeah. that's my big thing is, is if you make a commitment that you're not going to lie and if you make a commitment that um, you're going to go where facts go, it, one of the nice things about it is that it doesn't require a whole lot of thinking about what to do next. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's yeah. very liberating. Truth is shockingly liberating. Yeah. And, um, and that's like, so like, there, but so the challenge is, well, I try really hard to stick to, I mean, it, it doesn't take a lot of effort because once you decide to, 
to tell the truth, it, it doesn't take a lot of effort. But the what takes some struggle is what truths we not necessarily. It's an emphasis thing, yes. right? It's like I'm I'm not gonna I, like when people hire me for a speech, and I know the audience is gonna be much more pro-Trump than I am. I'll say, hey, look, I don't have to talk about Trump. You know, mm-hmm. um, I don't have to talk about the administration at all, or we can, you know, there are lots of things I can talk about, but if you do Q&A and someone asks me a question, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. And so sometimes I just don't do Q&A. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, not lying and not telling every single truth at, at the worst possible moment or the most inconvenient moment, those are different things. Yes. And so like, like this, this push right now from the Trump White House to punish or pressure networks not to put certain people on the air anymore because they didn't tell the truth. Uh-huh. Um, the idea that the Trump administration is this oh grand champion of truth, or it's like, um, or that that you know, it's even worse than that. Is like it's outrageous that you put these conspiracy theorists on the air. And it's like Donald Trump is just a bundle of conspiracy theories. Um, he calls Sean Hannity all the. I mean, Sean Hannity for crying. Yeah, out. and or, or or you know, I mean, just the birther stuff, right? Yeah. And oh my then, gosh, yeah. Um, but it, this is another tension I have. I got you know a, a couple months ago, in the response to Trump's wall speech, mm-hmm. Mark Levin and I know Mark Levin. I like Mark Levin. Um, I, you know, it's a complicated thing. I don't like. I don't agree with everything that he does, and I certainly don't. But we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. But he was on TV and he was asked for his response to the speech, which he thought was magisterial and wonderful and was going to persuade everybody. Fine. He was wrong about that, but fine. Mm-hmm. And then he was asked about Pelosi and Schumer's response. And he was like, well, the first thing you need to know is they're liars. They lie. And, and <laughs> it's like, okay, that's true. They yeah. do lie. Yeah. But if you only care about the lies that come from Democrats and not for the people who are allegedly speaking for you... You don't really care about lies, mm-hmm. and how, when, and how to articulate that and intervene. Because I criticized Levin on Twitter, and oh my gosh, I got so much grief. How dare you? Oh yeah, you know, point out, you know, how dare you question Levin? I was like, I was questioning Levin's statement about Mark's statement about Schumer and Pelosi was absolutely correct. It's just like he didn't say a word about Trump lying. Yeah, you know, and that's a problem. And I hate being the everybody's wrong, both sides are bad kind yeah. of thing. But it's sort of where I am. I, I'm. That's where I am. And look, I, I still critique the left all the time. I mean, holy cow, the Covington Catholic stuff, the Kavanaugh, a tr- yeah, you know, sure. awful. But at the same time, look, I do. I will admit, I have a special concern for the health of the movement that I've been in my whole life, yeah, my whole sure. adult life. And so if I have an option between am I going to write the 15th consecutive story about this thing on the left that I don't agree with right. or the 10th consecutive, whatever, or there's something that bothers me about what's happening inside our own house that I think is going to have negative ramifications far beyond when Trump is gone, yeah, I'm going to write right. about that. And yeah. And it's hard, and, and and people don't like it, and they get angry, and why you do this? And I guess the best analogy I can come up with is, you know, if you're looking for, if there's accountability, you know, and let's just compare the movement to like a family. It's imperfect comparison. Are you going to hear more from like your uncle or your, your, your brother or sister or from like the family down the street? Right, right. You know? I mean, somebody who's coming at this from a position of 
care and concern for what has been built and what could be built or from somebody who's actually going to try to tear down whatever it is you try to build. Right. I mean, and and that's and I think that's true of both sides actually. I think that the only way that the, we're going to reform sort of this race towards polarization and ends justifies the means and all of that is internal critique of that. Yeah. Yeah. And and because progressives quite frankly are not all that super interested in my takes on no, the that's progressive right. movement. That's right. You know, <laughs> and then you know, again, I'm not. I don't want to like steal time on this for that. But you know, this is one of the things that Steve Hayes and I believe in passionately. Is, mm-hmm. is that you know, you need truth squatting on your own side. Totally. If you're going to have credibility about truth squatting the other side, the analogy I would use is less about the family and more like um, foreign aid. Mm-hmm. It's like. It's one thing to criticize some country that we don't give any money to and don't support. Yeah. It's another thing when our government, which is supposed to speak for me, is supporting a country that does terrible and evil things. Right. And if you can't criticize the people who are speaking essentially as a matter of culture and politics in your name, yeah. you, if you don't say anything, that is tacit acknowledgement at some level that you agree with it. Yeah, and so I kind of often feel like I just have to speak up because I don't agree with it, and you know, and it's silence is consent. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I just and I hate it. I, yeah. I'll just be honest, I just hate it. But yeah, anyway, all right, we've gone long. This is uh, and we and we haven't even touched anything incredibly important like Game of Thrones or, or Avengers Endgame coming in. Yeah, so you know, I I agreed with you. We'll just do this very quickly, people. Go <laughs> go to the bathroom. We'll be done in a second. Um. um I I agreed with you. Captain Marvel wasn't as bad as the haters were saying. Mm-hmm. It wasn't great. No. But it at least held my attention for, you know, and I mean, the thing that, and I wrote about this in the corner, the, the thing that infuriated me about it was them turning the scrolls and essentially, is essentially into the Palestinians. Right. You right. know, and the scrolls in the comic books are one of the great alien race villains mm-hmm. of the last 50 years. And the whole shapeshifter thing would have been perfect as a sort of alliance with, like, Hydra, mm-hmm. where all mm-hmm. of a sudden they could take other people's forms, mm-hmm. you know, and all that kind of stuff. Sort of like in the X-Men movies, what Mystique takes other yep. people's form. There's a lot of plot potential in yeah. that. And they just threw it all the way to score a little stupid narrative point that yeah. I just that really really bothered me. But I called it. I, I think of it as mid tier Marvel. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. What What's crazy to me is you watch that movie and you think, how in the heck did that become some sort of blunt instrument in the culture wars online? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, what on? It was a standard superhero right. movie, which for me means it was a fun night at the movies. It didn't stay with me in the way like Dark Knight Dead or right. you know something like that. But it was just a fun night at the movies. But we can, if we can transform that yeah. into a blunt instrument in the culture wars, I have you know the. I'm, but that, that isn't that. But that's sort of the point we were both making earlier about if they're for it, I'm gonna have to be against it. Yeah. The second feminists started celebrating it as this path-breaking triumph for women. Yeah. There are going to be this sort of anti-feminist crowd, or at least the dunking crowd on the right, who are like. Oh no no! Actually, it sucks. Yeah, and then the other side gets mad because you said it sucks. So then it has to be fantastic. Yeah, it's not fantastic. It's just fine. My favorite was the Slate headline that tried to split the difference, where this woman for Slate wrote that Captain Marvel is a truly mediocre superhero movie, 
And that's why it is such a triumph. Because <laughs> finally women get to make mediocre superhero movies yeah. too. Which there's a certain superficial logic to that, but you know, it's like yeah. come on. Yeah, and and you know, the the larger American public does not draw a distinction between Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel. Like, right, right, right. you know, you, we had the Wonder Woman moment, which, by the way, that was a tr- I loved Wonder Woman. Yeah. It, it's part of my case for DC greater than Marvel. But I loved Wonder Woman. We had this whole moment. And then how many people in America thinking, well, DC's had a hero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Marvel hasn't. Forgetting the fact that, like, you're watching all these Marvel movies and they're just... Scarlett Johansson, yeah. you know, Black Widow, Scarlet Witch. I mean, all of yeah, these yeah. people. And and who on earth is going, when is Marvel? When is Marvel finally going to connect with social justice? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. like such a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. Also, like, um, this is one of my constant complaints. It, ha- it comes up every few years. First wrote about it in, like, 2002 um, with the first Tolkien movie, with the first Lord of the Rings movie. Oh, yes. You know, that... They, they, I'll be honest. They have a better case about the men of the East mm-hmm. who look like basically like Arabs or Indians. You know, they're like swarthy or dark. The Herodrum, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. And they're riding elephants and all that mm-hmm. kind of fun. But it originally began, because that came out, That was you don't see any of them until the third one, right? Yeah. This thing started with the first one where orcs were, cons- were, were racist. It was racist to depict orcs because they have dark skin and fair. And like, I remember writing this response to this guy from The Guardian. It was like, there are some people who see giant, feral, reptilian-skinned monsters, and they say, cool, orcs. Yes. And then there are some people who say, oh, my God, black people. <laughs> <laughs> and Who's got the race problem? Who, yeah, exactly. Who's the racist here? Yeah. Right, you know? yeah. And it's just this weird desire to make everything a friggin' Rorschach test. Oh, Completely, And it's exhausting. And, you know, it used to be that, you know, it was confined to this random piece in The Guardian. Yeah. But now it's the random piece in The Guardian amplified throughout woke Twitter. Right. Which then creates this sort of like zeitgeist within the journalism profession itself and the entertainment industry itself. Right. And it's just weird. In the meanwhile, most people are not conscious of it, but it still influences the industry. Yeah. Right. Which is a problem. No, it's a huge problem. Yeah. Um, but this is something I, I I still think... I've written about this a few times over the years. Um, one of the things I'm fascinated by um, is how difficult it is to... In fiction or in sort of adaptation of historical events or anything you want on film, to remain... Truthful, mm-hmm. or let me put it this way: to remain um, compelling, and also depict evil as good, right? Mm. Like it is very, very, very difficult to show a rape scene where you think the rapist is the good guy. Right. It's just hard, right? Yes. I mean, like Jamie Lannister is the the only guy who came close in mm-hmm. recent modern memory where he like mm-hmm. in the, the crypt of his son with his wife, with his sister blah 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 yeah. it's a complicated situation Compl- yes <laughs> but um, and this is one of the reasons why I hated the movie Munich mm-hmm. um, because the only way Spielberg could arouse sympathy for the Munich terrorists mm-hmm. was to not show them being terrorists and yeah. and like cold bloodedly assassinating the Israeli athletes yeah. right they had you had to keep that off screen yeah 
And anytime you want to depict, like, you know, all the sort of the hardcore left progressives who are sympathetic to, you know, Hamas or, you know, the PLO or all that kind of stuff, you cannot actually depict what those guys do right. and maintain the sympathy of an audience. So you have to manipulate the audience, you have to manipulate the facts. And I think that this is, for me, it's one of these reassuring things about the popular culture. There, yeah, there are evil movies and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, but they have to really manipulate the truth in a way and hide the truth. And any honest depiction of of reality is going to support goodness over evil ninety nine percent of the time. Well, that's a you know that that brings to mind there was a little mini controversy in the movie Lone Survivor. I don't know if you remember that. That's the Marcus Luttrell story. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the mini controversy was it allegedly cast the seals as too good and the Taliban as too bad. And uh-huh. one of the reasons, one of the ways that it did is it showed the Taliban doing a summary execution early in the film. Right. And the point I wrote, because... Because the Taliban never does anything. No, never. What a slander. Um, But the thing I wrote was, they still soft-pedaled it. Yeah, yeah. They still soft-pedaled how... Like, one of the things that people ask me about my Iraq deployment, what are some things you learned? Which, I mean, you know, what do you have... How many hours do you have? But the shorthand version is, a deployment is harder than I imagined, and our enemy was more evil than I imagined. Yeah, yeah. And... And, you know, I could just go and tell you four or five things that happened in our area of operations that you would scarcely believe human beings are capable of that. Yeah. And and they showed one thing that was a summary execution that, and that was out of bounds. Like, yeah. if you tried to show what these guys actually did, I can't even imagine yeah, yeah, yeah. the response. Yeah. So it's funny. The re- one of the reasons this popped into my head was I'd read a syndicated column recently about the Green New Deal stuff, right? And mm-hmm. so you mentioned earlier about nuclear power, right? It's like, I wrote this comment. It's like, imagine you're making a movie where there's a meteor coming to Earth and it's only 12 years before it gets here. And long story short, and Congress introduces a plan to take out the meteor and then the people introducing it vote present, right? Yeah. <laughs> Very hard to explain to an audience, right? Yeah. And similarly with nuclear power thing, if you actually believe that this, that global, that global warming, which I think is a real challenge that we need to think about but I'm for I'm for curing it rather than like throwing wet blanket on the economy but um, I like geoengineering but um, if you actually believe it's an existential crisis that we have 12 years to save the planet which is the new talking point and you're still against nuclear power it's sort of like the meteor movie where you just think nuclear weapons are so icky that yeah. you will not build them, even though you're sending them into space to destroy a meteor that's yeah. going to kill us all. Yeah, right. It's you cannot, and so it just it's a, it's a it's a, it's a useful heuristic to cut through people's political arguments. Sometimes, yes. like, how would you do this in a movie that makes this make sense to an audience? And it exposes interesting things. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the meteor analogy because I've been learning, I've been trying to educate myself a lot about the barriers to the nuclear. It's not a nuclear solution, but nuclear amelioration mm-hmm. of the greenhouse gas issue. And um, one of the, you know, I was talking to somebody super, 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 super well informed, and he he just he just said, "Look, even the people using the meteor type rhetoric don't believe the meteor type rhetoric when yeah. it comes right down to it, because the question is, it's not even to, you know the thing about the Green New Deal. It's not even well, we wouldn't even launch the nuke because we don't like nukes. It's like." We're not going to launch the nuke, and we're going to have to implement 
Medicare for all. Right. No, exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah. so the meteor's on the way, and so we have to introduce a universal basic income and right. Medicare for... And, and you're just thinking, what on earth? I yeah. mean, is this not... Can you not see this undermines everything? And it was interesting. I, I wrote something similar to that and got a, several progressive friends who kind of wrote me quietly and said, yeah. 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 Like, I'm really concerned about the climate, even more concerned than I am. And, and I call myself climate concerned and I am more concerned about the climate than you are David and I look at this Green New Deal and I'm just thinking what a disaster yeah yeah yeah, yeah. what a disaster and and but you know that's the the climate we have they didn't feel like they could say that out loud yeah yeah nobody felt like they could say that out loud like Jonathan Chait did for example and he can you know I have my issues with him he can he can go after the right unfairly sometimes I think but I gotta admit, he's shown some courage. Yeah, no, he has. Yeah. He has. He's actually someone who thinks there's a true difference between being a liberal and a progressive. Yeah. And I mean, I think there is. I'm sure I know. I've known Jonathan for 25 years. Uh, we would define these things differently, and yeah. we would draw lines differently, and all of the rest. But he's he's willing to punch hippies every now and then, and that, <laughs> that's a valuable thing, you know. And yeah. um, and it's funny that the conservatives who like. Many of the conservatives who celebrate Chate for doing that kind of stuff get really mad when you punch alt writers. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know? when you do it to your side. And yeah, yeah. Again, it's like you have an obligation to police your own side. Anyway, we've gone really long. Um, it's great to have you on. I hope after my official departure from National Review Magazine, uh, we can still have you on. That there's, I'd love it. Isn't some you know in the old days, uh, National Review had a policy that if you wrote. For or appeared in the masthead of, I think, the American Mercury. You couldn't write for or appear in the masthead of National Review. Ah. It was part of Bill's effort to like shun the anti-Semites. Yeah. There are certain publications that both of us can name right now that we might think we should have that policy towards. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it'll be mine. <laughs> yeah, no, no <laughs> so, it will not. <laughs> uh, so always good to have you back on, and thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. 